We're in the midst of a series in the book of Revelation that's going to take us a number of more weeks as we uh, uh, plow through this book, which is an opportunity for us to reflect on who is coming as well as what is coming. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 5. That's where we will uh, launch off this morning as we uh, look at what God has for us. Uh, later on in the message, the, the kind of the theme will be related to uh, some why and how questions. I think we've all experienced times where we've uh, tried to help people by motivating them, by telling them the why they ought to do what they ought to do, and then also giving them some practical points about how they can actually do it. And if you've been a parent or a grandparent or been around kids, you've uh, experienced that. Maybe, uh, maybe you had the responsibility to try to teach your kids to eat their vegetables. Remember that uh, ordeal, particularly if your kids didn't naturally um, enjoy vegetables or the parent didn't naturally enjoy vegetables as well. And, and so you had to get into the why. Well, why should I eat these things I don't like? Because they're what? They're good for you. And did that work real well? Uh, probably not. But anyway, it, at least it was a good reason to motivate them to eat their vegetables. And, and let's say you could you get them to buy in on that, that it was good for them. And then you uh, had to somehow figure out a way that they could actually do that. Now, sometimes you could give this, if they didn't particularly like the vegetable, you could say, well, why don't you just swallow it whole and you won't taste it on the way down, okay? That's one how. And the other thing is you can mix it with the food you do like, and maybe as you eat the food you do like, you won't be tasting the food you don't like. Anybody try that mechanism? You know, the why and the how sometimes can be that which will be helpful in helping people get done what needs to get done. Or how about this? Have you ever had the experience where um, you try to teach young children to take a, a shower or a bath, okay? And you're trying to convince them of the necessity of that. Uh, Mark, who, who uh, helps lead our worship in the first service, uh, I remember distinctly remembering Mark growing up, and he, would, uh, he was a pretty active little kid, and, and he never thought he needed to take a shower. And so um, I'd tell him to take a shower, and he said, well, why, Dad? And I gave him, gave him the, la- the, the line from um, uh, John chapter 11, where it says, because thou stinketh, like, <laughs> like um, Lazarus in the grave for four days. Uh, yeah, that wasn't necessarily convincing him, but finally I pushed him and uh, said, no, you've got to go in the shower, or if you don't, you know, some privileges and all those kind of things would not come to pass. And so he'd be a little sly. He would turn the water on, and then he would splash his face and get his hair wet from the sink, and then he'd come out, I'm all done. But then Dad would walk in there, and there were other telltale signs which was very clear, he didn't actually get in the shower. He just thought turning on the shower was sufficient. And, and so as you think about getting people to do what they need to be, that needs to get done, there's a why and there's a how. And even those things we know we ought to do, sometimes, sometimes we need that motivational kick or we just won't get done what we know really is healthy for us. And, and actually when you think about worship, which we're going to be talking about this morning, uh, or just even gathering together as a group of people at a church, Sometimes, sometimes there's a lot of reasons why we can choose not to come. Maybe you're just not feeling that well. And, and we say, well, I'm only missing one Sunday, which it depends how you do the math. To me, I think you're missing a whole week, you know, just not one day. You know, you're missing a whole week if you miss Sunday. And then um, there's the thing, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I, can, I can worship at home or whatever it might be. And so you, you come up with all kinds of reasons. So you, you really got to get to the point and say, well, why are you here? What, what's so big about gathering together? Uh, as God's people. And so you better answer that why question. And then, of course, the how part of it is, well, once you get here, how are you supposed to get the most out of being here? And those are some practical things that, that relate to, to be involved in God's program. 
Well, we're going to see that this morning as we see what happens in heaven and some lessons we can learn from it. But if, uh, if, we, if we look at Revelation chapter 5 this morning, uh, that, that means if we're going through it consecutively, we've already looked at chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And so what I want to do is kind of set up the scene again as far as where we've been and where we're going by, by looking at just some simple things to begin with. There's an outline of this book. Some books in the Bible are hard to outline. And the only reason we outline books is to kind of put it in a framework so it's somewhat memorable or we see the flow. Well, in this book, particularly, God gives us the outline in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, uh, because he tells John, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So that's pretty clear. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some things now, that you, and then I want you to write about it. And then I'm going to show some things that right are going on um, in the days that you're living. That's the things that are in the present, and then also things that are going to be in the future. And this breaks out pretty well, because in chapter 1, John recorded the things he had seen, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ and his majesty. Um, and so that's the things he has seen. And then chapters 2 3 are the things that are. And remember, we spent some extended time looking at chapters 2 and 3, looking at the seven churches of Revelation, which were model churches, not only for now, but for then as well, because there were more than seven churches um, in the first century. But the things that they were going through are the things that we go through and the lessons God wants us to learn. And the church is a perfect place for imperfect people, so there's always the ongoing challenge of living out what we really believe. But now we enter that section about the things that will be the future. And that's chapters 4 through 22. And what's interesting, and we'll probably refer to this in, in the future as well, and Sundays come up if the Lord tarries, is that we now have that which was talking about, which was talking, which was spoken and written about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now there's going to be an absence of that. And that is messages to the churches. The church is gone. And I think that's pictorial of what has happened. God has brought his people into his presence. And what we have now in chapters 4 and 5 is what is happening in heaven before God breaks out and does all the things that we read about and we wonder about in the book of Revelation as the judgments come here to earth. And last week we looked at chapter 4 about what's happening in heaven. And we, we saw that heaven's going to be a busy place. It's not going to be a boring place. There's going to be so many things to do and experience. And you can just be amazed by the beauty of heaven. You can be overwhelmed by the people that are in heaven. You can have a sensory explosion by the sounds and, and the sights and probably the smells of heaven. And then you can be just, oh, just shocked by the angelic realm of heaven and then participate in the amazing worship in heaven. And that's what we're going to see this morning. But in the backdrop of that, we're going to answer the question, what's the why and the how of the worship that's happening up in heaven and should be happening up down here on earth before he comes? So let's look at that this morning. But before we do, I want to throw in something for free. Um, uh, Warren likes things for free, so I'm going to give you something for free. Uh, the book of Revelation is a book that's filled with mystery for many people. In fact, People will either run to the book of Revelation because they're fascinated with those kind of things or they'll run away from Revelation because they say, well, you just can't figure it out, so why, why bother? Well, the reason we ought to go to the book of Revelation, number one, it's in this book, and so if it's in this book, uh, we, we better read it. And then secondly, there's a blessing um, promised here. If we will read and hear and heed these words, we'll have a blessing. 
And so God wants us to begin getting this book. Um, but often people, they just struggle. Well, what about the things in the Bible I don't understand? Or what about the things in the book of Revelation I don't understand? And the challenge is, well, get the things you can understand and appreciate those. Um, I'm going to try to give you my best shot about the particulars in this book. But even as I do that, I know I will not exhaust everything that's in here, as well as necessarily answer every question you might have. And so I encourage you, if you've got questions about future things, uh, theologians call it eschatology, specific things maybe that I don't even talk about in detail in this book or in other parallel books, write me a question and I'll try to respond to it as um, fully as I can. But one of the qu- some of the questions, as it relates to things that are going to happen, are things God has said definitively or clearly about, and some things are left to putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, I'm not a particularly gifted jigsaw puzzle person, uh, but there are some things in the Bible I've tried to put together, trying to figure it out. And I remember a question my dad used to always ask people just to kind of frustrate them. He said, when you get to heaven, what do you think you're going to see? Are you going to see God the Father? Are you going to see the Holy Spirit? Are you going to see God the Son? Are you going to see three people? Are you going to see one person? You ever thought about that? Anybody? Well, for the four, five of us, I'll try to answer that question. The rest of you can just, okay. Yeah, what are we going to see in heaven? And really the best answer is I don't know, but I will give you my opinion. Uh, partly because as you see the, the words used uh, in addressing the Trinity, you'll, you'll see kind of a distinction, not only here but later on, uh, about um, the Godhead. When he speaks of, John speaks about the Godhead, particularly the one on the throne, which is probably God the Father. He sees the one sitting on the throne, and he's like a, like a, a, a um, jasper and, and a sardis. And, and those are uh, precious gems that have magnificent colors and kind of a prism type of look, and particularly with the, the sardis um, or the jasper, kind of a diamond approach. And, and I really believe in heaven primarily what we'll see, we'll see the manifestation of the power of God the Father. And it's kind of like seeing God in the, the burning bush. That was just a, 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 uh, an expression of the, of the presence of God. And I think we'll, we'll constantly experience the presence of the Father, but not necessarily in a definitive visual way. And the same thing is you hear the words described in the book of Revelation about the Holy Spirit. You you see it describe, him described as the one with seven eyes or the seven lamps. And again, those are, are symbols of who the Holy Spirit is. He, he is the one with fire and judgment. He is the one who is omniscient with the eyes that see everywhere. And, and so I think we'll experience the, the manifest presence of God the Father and God the Son. But I think the oneness of God will probably be emphasized throughout eternity. And what we'll see is we'll see Jesus. We'll see Jesus and, and the wounds of that which brings us into relationship with him, which, is, which was the sacrifice on the cross, will be, will be shown throughout eternity and we'll be reminded about God's great grace and mercy. So when we, see, when we experience heaven, it's, there's a possibility that what we'll see is the oneness of God manifested in God the Son, but the presence of the Father and the Spirit will be everywhere. But as we experience heaven, and as we experience heaven, and the lessons that we glean from the book of Revelation, and there's cer- certain things that are right there on the surface, and the distinction between knowing, well, what part is opinion and what part is fact, 
is how close you tie it to the text. Often we miss getting a lot of things out of the Bible because we don't simply read it simply and carefully and glean what's right there. Now, it's fun to go beyond that to try to put the pieces together or to understand maybe the phraseology of the words. But what we're going to try to do through this series is is see what it says and then venture off to what it means. And what it says we know is authoritative and not just someone's opinion. Well, let's look at it this morning as as we're going to see the why as well as the how to worship. Revelation chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. I, this is John, saw on the right hand of him, this is probably the manifest presence of God the Father, who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, concretely, what are you seeing here? There, there's this important book, this special book, and it's sealed up. Now, in those days, the book was not bound like we have books, uh, like your Bibles or a hymn book or something like, similar to that. But they were scrolls, and they, they, this probably book was scrolled probably from both ends, and it would ravel in. And once the document was made, and usually there was detail in, in the, 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 the main part of the book, but then on the outside of the book there would be some subscription or, or, or some words that would describe what's inside the book. And it says here it was sealed. We know from, from history that a sealed book, particularly a seven-sealed book, was a book of great importance or a scroll of great importance. Often it was either a last will or testament, as in the truth, as in the experience of Augustus or Vespasian, or it was a title deed, a legal document for property. And that probably speaks well of this particular scene in heaven as it portrays about what is to happen, because we're living in a world that the Bible says the God of this world is who? Satan. And who is the prince of the power of the air? That's who? Satan. And so you see, as, as God is looking to this world in which he's invited us to pray uh, in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom, thy, um, thy kingdom uh, and will be done on, on earth as it is in heaven. And right now, is that happening? No. Because God's will is done perfectly in heaven, but not perfectly here on earth. And so what we have here is an expression where God's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to settle all the accounts. He's going to make things right. But right now, that book is a closed book. And it goes on as, as, as John is in this experience. He said, and I saw a strong angel. Which sometimes when you read God's word, you're thinking, now, why did you add that particular adjective? Is there any such thing as a weak angel? <laughs> these are strong angels. Okay, these are powerful beings. And we saw that portrayed even in the uh, chapter 4 as we saw the, the angelic realm with the, the four living creatures with Six wings and calves and, and, and uh, uh, human faces and eagle faces and, and, all, and the lion faces. And so they're, they're strong, powerful beings. But we have a, a strong angel proclaiming with a, what kind of voice? A loud voice. In fact, in the original language, it really means screaming voice. So he wants everyone to hear about what he's to say. And so he, he screams out, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? So in the corridors of heaven, however you want to imagine, you know, this spatial place where God has created for his people and his, and his created order, this, this word goes out. Who's going to open this book? 
Now, sometimes if you buy a really new book, I, most of the time when I buy books, I try to buy them used because I'm kind of cheap. I don't care if anybody's... As long as they don't... When they write in the, in the, in the book, I can read the real letters. I don't, care what, I, I don't care how many notes they put in it. But if you buy a brand new book, pretending about what kind of book it is, sometimes they put stuff over it, don't they? You've know, you got to break that whatever clear stuff it is, that seal on it. And, and that's basically what we have here. You've got this book... But it's got a seal on it. Who's going to open it up? And the answer becomes in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. So the, the, the word goes out. Who's worthy to open this book? And the answer is what? No one. Now, again, you can stop in and just see the obvious. You can... You can describe someone in superlative terms to try to impress others about that particular person you're describing. And that would be on the positive side of it. And that is often done in Scripture. Or on the other side, you could say, well, let's compare this person to everybody else. And, and, and we're going to see that in the moment because, you know, spoiler alert, who was able to open up this book? Jesus, Right. But what he says before describing the one who is worthy, he really says no one else is worthy. No one else is worthy. And how far did they look? In heaven and on the earth or under the earth? Now, these are pictorial phrases here, but under the earth can be all the angelic realm, even Satan, Lucifer. He wasn't able to open this book. But, but take all the other people throughout all of history. In your small groups this past, uh, a couple weeks ago, I think we asked the question, well, who's, who's one of your favorite Bible characters in the Bible? Character, one, who's one of your favorite characters in the Bible or your heroes of the faith? And, and there are a lot of people in the Bible that are admirable. Abraham, who's called a friend of God. David is called the, had a man after God's own heart. You, you had... You had Joseph, who, who was magnificently used of God to preserve God's people. You had, you had Daniel. Daniel, to me, is always amazing. And as I've been rereading this book recently, it says of Daniel that when he was being given a vision about what was going to happen in the future, and we're in good company because when he got the vision, he had a hard time understanding it as well. And the angel had to help him understand and give him insight and understanding. And the reason he was given that particular privilege of getting the vision and then some extra information about what it meant was because in heaven he was highly esteemed. You ever thought about that? I wonder what the people in heaven think about me. <laughs> I don't think they think much about me at all, you know. I'm not even on their radar. Mike who? You know. But, yeah, but they thought of Daniel as being highly esteemed. And yet even Daniel was not worthy to open this book. And that would be true of the Apostle Paul and Peter and, and the rest of them. And, and so as, as you begin to hear this you know, portrayed, why should we worship? Because Jesus is worthy of our worship. And you see the response of, of John as he experiences. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And so, you know, the, the phrase weep 
greatly is no hyperbole here. Because the word for weep here is the same one used of Jesus when he was looking at Jerusalem and he weeped bitterly because they would not come to him. It's the same word used of Peter when, when he betrayed Jesus, when he heard the cock crow three times. And he was broken inside and he wept bitterly. And, and this is John's experience in heaven because he looks at this book, which is going to be the book used to describe all that God will do to bring back earth under his power. He sent it out, but now God is reclaiming it. And when they can see no one, he weeps bitterly. You ever read texts and sometimes you wonder, well, that doesn't seem consistent. I thought in heaven there were no what? Tears, right? How does John get away with this? How does he get away with weeping when there are not supposed to be any tears in heaven? Well, one thing, when it says no tears in heaven, it says God is going to wipe away every tear, right? So it doesn't mean that this wasn't necessarily any tears in heaven, but those tears will go away. And actually what happens to John is that they go away pretty quickly because he gets a kind of a rebuke from one of the elders there in heaven. And one of the elders, verse 5, said to, said to him, Stop weeping. Have you ever tr- told someone to stop crying when they're crying? Does that work very well? It's not, it's not easy to turn off the, the fountains, all right? And, and if, if there is a way is to somehow, if the person is crying for a particular reason, is to take that reason, in a sense, away from them. You know, Jesus did that. Uh, I think it's in Luke chapter 8, there was the, the synagogue ruler's daughter that had died, and, and, and they were weeping bitterly. He said, stop weeping. And why would they stop weeping? Because he was going to do what? He was going to heal her. He was going to raise her from the dead. Now, if I was weeping because someone had just died, and I found out that they weren't going to die, or they'd be raised from the dead, I'd stop what? I stopped weeping. And this is what happens here. The reason he was weeping because he said, I don't see how this, all that's going wrong right now. And it's quite possible that what he had seen, he'd already seen Jerusalem devastated by the Roman Empire in 70 AD. He'd seen God's churches persecuted in deep ways. He, he saw all of his friends had died. All the other apostles were dead at this moment. He's wondering, God, when are you going to fix this? Is there anyone worthy to fix this? And maybe for that moment he thought that it was going to be through some other source other than him, him directly. And that's maybe why he missed it. You're going, how did you miss Jesus? Doesn't everybody know the answer to every question in the Bible is Jesus? How did he miss that? Because possibly he thought that he thought God was going to use somebody else and they just hadn't found him yet. How can the person who's supposed to open this book be lost? And then he said, no, there is one to open up this book. And it's the one you should have thought of first. It's the one whose name is Jesus. And he is the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And has overcome so as to open the book with the seven seals. Now that, that's kind of the introductory comments to make a few simple points. Why are we to worship Jesus? Because Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. And, and sometimes we use religious words in places like this to church and go, what in the world does that mean? You know, worship, worship. Well, basically, it, it's come to that point in your life about something you have great value over and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to communicate that. I'm, I'm going to express that I think that has value. And of course, people, you know, worship, you know, inanimate things. Some people worship, worship their cars, you know. Oh, just, the 
car is so awesome and they'll wax it every day, you know, type thing. Because that, that car is so valuable to them or, or some other type of thing. And, and, and what he's saying here, look, there is something worthy of our worship and it will never grow old because it's always worthy of proclaiming praise to. And again, let me remind you that just as you express love to people in words, you also want to see it in what? Actions. And the same is in terms of our worship of God. We, we express worship in words, but we express it also in actions. And, and, and this kind of worship should be ongoing and motivated because Jesus is worthy of all of our worship. He alone was open, able to open the book, which will right all wrongs. But not only that, and I, you know, I had some notes in your outline this morning, is that basically this book, if we look at it as the title of Jesus of the Land, this is the, land, this is the title of that was kind of given to Satan when we fell into sin, and now God's taken it back. And he's going to take it back in all his power and glory. But not only is he worthy, but he's the lion. There, there was a great debate a number of years ago about whether you could be a Christian and... and uh, if, you could, if you could just believe in Jesus as Savior, but not in, as Lord. Look, at, they're both and there. He is Lord and He is Savior. And, and we kind of see this in a moment. As we see the description of Jesus both Lord, or He's both the Lion and the Lamb. And, and this is throughout Scripture. In Genesis chapter 49, 8 through 10, we have these words, a prophecy related to the one who is to come. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your right hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is like a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares to rouse him up? He's the king of the jungle. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff become its feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Speaking of the one who is to come, who would be the lion, in which all the people would be obedient because he would be king of kings and lord of lords. So, so as we gather for worship, and whether it's privately or publicly, when we're all together or we're all alone, it's to recognize he is worthy and also he is lord. He is the supreme ruler in this universe. We bow down before him because of who he is. And if we're not motivated to, to worship God, when we have no clue as to who he is. He is the supreme being in this universe that's in charge. He is the lion of the lamb. But he goes on in, in Revelation chapter 5 and speaks of him not only as the lion, but also the lamb. And, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, which speaks of authority, and seven eyes, which speaks of omniscience, seeing everything, which are the seven spirits of God, which is manifested in the Holy Spirit, went out into all the earth. And he came and took the book of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So we have a picture of Jesus, who is the lion and the lamb, taking this book, the one who has all power and authority, the seven horns, and is able to see everything. And he alone is worthy because he is the lamb and he is the lion to right all wrongs in this world. You know, it's interesting to think about Jesus as, as the lamb. And we know in John chapter 129, it's in your outline this morning, the next day, this is John's uh, speaking in this account, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the lamb of God 
who takes away the what? The sin of the world. And you're thinking, why do they call Jesus the lamb? I mean, that, you know, those little dumb animal creature type thing. I mean, why would, I mean, he got the lion and now you call him the lamb. Because it speaks of of the two things that Jesus does. He, He rules, but he also is willing to be a sacrifice on our behalf. If you know the Passover story, and and actually this specific word for for lamb here has the idea of like a pet lamb. And what would happen is each family, as they prepare for Passover, and as they prepare to to put the blood and apply that to to their sin, they they had to pick a, a lamb that was unblemished, that was perfect. But the interesting thing was they had to bring this lamb, who was a, an infant lamb, and for four days they had to bring it into their home. Now, can you imagine if you have young children and you bring this little furry animal, you know, this kind of a cute little animal, it's just unblemished, perfect, and, and maybe, maybe the children have some of the responsibilities to feed the lamb, the, the milk or whatever sustenance it was, and maybe have to hold some kind of a bottle-like type of instrument to get that in there. After four days with this extremely cute, perfect little lamb, that lamb would now become a what in that family? Well, that's what it is going to be. But right now, that lamb has become a what? A part of the the family. They're a beloved pet. They're dear in the hearts of each one in that family. And then four days after that happens, they take that lamb and they sacrifice it. And if somehow we miss this picture, that, that when Jesus went to the cross, that was God the Father's beloved part of the family. Remember the story of Abraham taking up Isaac? And, and, and I think it's Genesis chapter 17. He describes his son. He, this, this is my son, my, my only son, the son that I love. And he gets the word that he's to sacrifice him. And see, that's the picture we have Every time we we think about Jesus, not only is he king of kings and lord of lords, he's almighty, but he was the one, the beloved one, who was willing to die on our behalf. He is worthy to be worshipped. Some writers describe it this way. As you look at Jesus being the lion and the lamb, it almost speaks of both comings, with one emphasizing one and the other emphasizing the other. When Jesus came as a lamb, that was at his first coming, wasn't it? And when he came as a lamb, he, he came as the one who was meek and mild. But when he comes as a lion in the second coming, he, he's coming as the almighty one and majestic one. When he came as the, the lamb, he, he came as one who was to be judged, to be judged for our sin. When he comes as a lion, he comes as the judge. And he will judge everyone for their rebellion against him. When he came the first time, he came as one who was to be sacrificed in the position of saving people. When he comes as king and king of the Lord, he'll be the sovereign ruler 
taking back all that is his. Is Jesus, Jesus worthy to be worshipped? He is of extreme value because he's a lion and he's a lamb. That's the why of worship. What's the how of worship? And we'll just do this really quickly. Just observing how worship is done in heaven. And if it's done in heaven, maybe we ought to start practicing here on earth. Verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures, verse 8, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. How are we to worship? We ought to worship with instruments, and we ought to worship with prayers. Now, I know the Church of Christ doesn't use any instruments in their worship, and, and that's a whole discussion to figure out why they don't do it, and there are some strange reasons. They, 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 they basically say, well, if there isn't any specific verse related to any of the specific churches in the New Testament before the book of Revelation that they, didn't, that they used instruments, then we shouldn't use instruments either. Which I would say, well, does that mean you shouldn't use electricity you know, for lights in your buildings? Should you not eat? Well, that's a whole other thing. All right. But the Bible wants us to understand that, that worship can be expressed in so many different ways. It's not only vocally, but with instruments. You can't read the book of Psalms without seeing instruments everywhere that express worship to God. And we ought to recognize also that it's, it's, worship is not just singing. It's everything else we do. And right in the midst of worship is prayer. Now, if you're wondering, uh, what's that whole picture of getting up to heaven, you're on a cloud playing a, a harp? That probably comes from here. Uh, but there's no clouds in this passage. It doesn't mean that we're all going to be handed a harp when we get there. Uh, but they used an instrument. And it was a kind of a ten-string uh, instrument. I don't know if it looks exactly like our harps. But it was an expression of giving praise and music uh, to God. Secondly, look at verse uh, 9 and 10. And, and, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to, to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your, uh, with your blood, more from every tribe, uh, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So not only should we worship God with instruments and with prayer, we ought to worship with a new song. Now the new idea here is not new in terms of chronology or time doesn't mean which is better if you if you're still singing traditional music you got to get up with the time and sing a new song with contemporary music It has nothing to deal with style or genre but it has to do with quality and the quality is who are you singing about and you are you really immersed in that because in in the psalms it talks about singing to god with a new song but this it's a song of quality recognizing your redeemer is coming or has come and will come again and he speaks about that the one who, who is Jesus and the one who has done so much for us. He's died for us, and he's the Savior. And he's also the one who makes his kingdom a priest. Thirdly, Revelation 5.11. Then I looked, and behold, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands. Uh, are there going to be a lot of people in heaven? Yes. And as we think about that, when they were singing and praising God... There were, there were other people there. And so when we think about worship, if worship, worship has to be with other people as well. There, there are times for us to worship God alone, but we ought to be with others because that's what's going to be in heaven as well. And then Revelation 5.12, he says, saying with what kind of a voice? 
a loud voice. So there ought to be volume in, in, in worship. And that's what uh, Allegra was trying to get us to do this morning. We, we, ought, we ought to sing with enthusiasm. And that's what, that's what volume produces. It's, and we talked about that last week. And, and as they praise, they praise with content. Look at this. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so there were particular subject matters as they praised God. He was worthy, but as they were to receive, which is basically give praise for, they were praising God that he was all-powerful, that he was uh, possessed all the riches of this universe, that he was wise, that he had might, that he has everything uh, related to being honorable, and he has all the glory that you could imagine. Now, just think about it for a moment. When we praise God, it ought to be for specific things. Uh, have you ever had friends who, who used, used religious language almost like as a, uh, a habit without any meaning? Uh, I, there was a friend of mine that he, he would say, praise the Lord, almost every other sentence. You know, you, you pass him a piece of bread. Well, praise the Lord. And you, you gave him you know, something to drink. Well, praise the Lord. You know, if you... If you turn left on a street, well, praise the Lord. If you turn right on a street, well, praise the Lord. And I'm thinking, this is, this is more religious than I am, all right? What's praise? You know, it, it was just everything, okay? What are you praising the Lord for? You know, praise the Lord for your, your, your power. Praise the Lord for your wisdom. Praise the Lord for your provision. You know, this thing about that. We pray um, in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our what kind of bread? You know, there's a lot of people on this planet right now. You know, if they prayed that prayer, that'd be a, that'd be a supply issue and a, and a, and a uh, distribution issue, wouldn't it? How do I get all that food to those people at the various times? God has all the riches that He needs, and, and so when we pray to God, it, it's never an issue whether He can do something. It's just whether it's God's His will to do it. Right? Well, I hope you have enough up there for me to have a meal today. That's not the issue. He might want us to go through difficult times and have less food than we want or not the type of food we we would like to have, but it's not because he doesn't have it. And so when we praise God, don't just say praise the Lord or thank you. Well, thank you for what? Be specific. Does that make sense? So when we worship God, we we can worship him in freedom with instruments and with prayers as well. We can praise God uh, with... um, uh, with, new, with a new awareness of who he is and what he's done. We can worship God with others. We ought to worship God with volume. We ought to worship God with content. And then two other things real quickly. Look at verse 13 and then 14. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, which sounds like everywhere, uh, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And I think that last phrase in verse 13 gives us another perspective on worship. Worship is not simply expressing the greatness and goodness of God, which is primary, but it's also an expression of surrender. When we say, might you have dominion forever and ever, it means that word dominion means rule. And so whenever we come to a, a worship, again, whether it's private or public, whether it's with other people or ourselves, and there isn't a part of here where we're yielding ourselves to God. Remind ourselves, because of who He is, He ought to be in charge of my life. Then we've, we've left out the ingredient which, which changes who we are. Worship should make a difference in terms of how we live. Does that make sense? That we ought to express the dominion or rule of God in our lives. 
And they did that in heaven, and we should do that here. And then finally, verse 14, And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen! And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, again, amen, again, it's not like a phrase like praise the Lord you just use and you have no idea what it means. Okay, we ought to know what we say by what we say, and, and, and it means something. And when we tag on an amen at the end of a prayer, what we ought to be thinking, what I just communicated to you is a true expression of my heart, and I believe it is true that you are capable of providing everything I just prayed about. Because amen means this is true, or so be it. And that ought to make us think a little bit about how we pray. Have you ever prayed a prayer you're glad God didn't pray, uh, answer? There's quite a few prayers I've prayed that way. And I'm thinking, what was I thinking to pray that way? You know? and, and so when we pray, we need to acknowledge by conviction that what we're praying about or what we just praise God about, not just lip service, when we proclaim that He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, He's the Savior, He is the alone one worthy, that He is, he is the one who... It, possesses all power and honor and glory and blessing and might, then we, we need to be convinced that that is true. Or our worship is simply empty and lip service. So this morning, putting this all together, this is the why and the how of worship. Worship, simply put, is reminding ourselves of how worthy He is to to, to to be given the expression of our praise to who he is and what he has done. And two of them, very simply, he is, he is the lion, lion, the ruler of this universe, and the lamb, the sacrificial lamb for our behalf. And then in terms of how we worship, we ought to worship with conviction, with surrender, with content, thinking specifically about what we're praising him for with enthusiasm expressed in volume or in other ways. We had a longing to do it, not just by ourselves, but with others. And there's a freedom to do it in so many different ways. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be good at worship. It doesn't mean that we sing as well as some people can sing or can play an instrument like other people can play it. But it means from the heart we're expressing to you how much you mean to us and how much you really are what we sing or pray about. Help us to be a worshiping people that people can see how great and awesome of God that we have. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this morning.